What? My water. You're drinking it. Dear Lord. <laughs> Have you been drinking it? Yes, it's my water. Well, that's it, then. I'm dead. Here we go. But I'm sorry. Do I really need to connect the dots for you? The backwash into this glass is every pathogen that calls your mouth home sweet home. Not to mention the visitors who arrive on the dancing tongue of your subtropical girlfriend. Hey, that's my sister and my country you're talking about. And it may have defiled one, but I won't have you talking smack about the other. Yes, ready to order? Yes, I'd like a seven-day course of penicillin, some uh, syrup of Ipecac to induce vomiting, and a mint. I don't understand. He drank from Leonard's glass. He drank from Leonard's glass, the words they'll be carving into my tombstone. That's actually my napkin. Oh, this is a nightmare! <laughs> Where are you going? To the bar to sterilize my mouth with alcohol. Gangway, dead man walking! told the Lord has blessed the household of Obedadam and everything he has because of the ark of God so David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obedadam to the city of David with rejoicing when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf wearing a linen of ephod David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him with her heart. I have got something that you need to see. I need to find an innocent victim. Ooh, here's a, just a fine-looking fella. Come here. I've got something to show you. Are you ready for this? Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Oh, dear Lord, oh, holy God, please pray for me. Another unsuspecting victim. It'll teach him not to put his worship things away quicker. Sir, I have something I need to show you. Come, come here, look. Oh! oh! <clears throat> I have something to show you. Each of you, you'll never have seen this on a pastor in church before in your entire life. Are you ready? This may 
disgust you. <laughs> Do you know who that is? It is Justin Bieber. He used to be, or he is still a famous singer. And now see, here's the problem. I don't really know what to do with my apparel for the rest of the sermon uh, because I don't normally preach in trench coats. So this is all I've got for you. So Justin Bieber was this like untouchable, famous musical artist. And then some things started happening in his life. Fame sort of went to his head. That sometimes happens to all of us when we become very powerful people. And then he started getting uh, distracted by a few things. Uh, Drugs, alcohol, He made some bad choices, and so then his fame, he was this, I mean, he was a teen heartthrob. Some of the youth and I were talking before service when they saw my lovely t-shirt, and they were commenting on how they used to have Justin Bieber Barbie dolls, and, or Ken dolls, I don't guess it's called a Barbie doll, Uh, Justin Bieber dolls, and all their stuff was Justin Bieber. He was the hottest thing on the market, and then all of a sudden, he, he makes some bad decisions, and then his fame crashes and he becomes an image of disgust rather than an image of someone that we want to follow. We are in the middle of a worship series on emotions, sweet emotions, emotions that we all feel. But the point is looking at how these emotions impact us and then how we use them to impact our own lives and the world. You see, uh, the movie Inside Out is one of the blockbuster hits of the summer, and it tells a story of a little girl and all the emotions that she feels inside of her head. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that movie and about our emotions is if you look at them, there's only one that is deemed positive in the whole list, and that emotion was joy. That was the only one that was going to bring happiness to her life. And then the other emotions like fear and anger and sadness and disgust, they would touch her memories or touch what was going on inside of her head, her thoughts and her actions, and turn them away from joy into being other things. Disgust is one of those emotions that if we use it in the right way, in a good way, we can use it and turn it for good instead of bad. Just like Justin Bieber right now is making a comeback. Uh, he went through a dark period in his career, but now he has gone into rehab. He's done some other things, and he's turned his life around. That's how we use the emotion of disgust. It is not necessarily a bad emotion. What happens, though, however, is when we have this emotion of disgust, we, it, is, it comes when we are repulsed by something or an action. So in the movie, the emotion of disgust becomes disgusted when there's broccoli on a pizza. Clap if you like broccoli on your pizza. Clap if you like pizza. Do you hear the difference? A lot of people like this one thing, but then when you do something to this one thing, it becomes disgusting. And I apologize for my microphone. It's doing weird things with the trench coat. Okay, sorry. Sorry about that. Now, we use things for positive emotions and for negative emotions. 
Disgust is one of those emotions that can be positive or negative. So this morning we're going to look at how can we feel it and then how can we take it and use it for something that is good. I want to show you a picture. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. The scripture that you heard Dee Dee read a few minutes ago, that was a scripture about King David. He was a shepherd boy in the minds of the people. If you look in history, he was a nobody. He came out from being a nobody, a lowly shepherd boy. He he killed this giant with a stone, this like really tall uh, army warrior from, for the other team. He knocked him out with a few stones. And then David becomes revered by all. He was known as one of the most handsome men around. And he became the right hand for King Saul. Saul was the king who had led the people into battle and become victorious. Saul, King Saul was the first king of the Israelite people. The Israelite people the chosen people of God, they were in Egypt, they were enslaved, and then they moved out, and then God led them, Yahweh, God was known as Yahweh, led them out of persecution, out of slavery, and they kept saying, we need a king. So Saul became their king, and then Saul would lead them into battle. He was very victorious, and then they encountered this army, the Philistine army, and they could not win anymore. They had large warriors like this guy named Goliath. And so finally, Saul happens upon this young man named David, And David goes into battle, kills the Goliath, the giant warrior, and then he becomes Saul's right-hand man. Now, here's where some other emotions have come into play. Saul ends up getting jealous that all the other people like David. He is insecure. He feels the emotion of fear. And rather than dealing with his fear, it then turns to anger, which is a secondary emotion. We looked at anger last week. And anger was just all-encompassing of Saul. And it ends up being his demise. Saul is now, in this story, Saul is now dead at his own hand. He took his own life so that he would not have to be enslaved by the the other army. And David is the king, King David. Now, the ark of the covenant or the ark of the tabernacle you are seeing a picture of a depiction of that this was their most sacred tribal symbol this is what movies have been made about in our society raiders of the lost ark traces back to this and this idea but this was a big big deal so i want you to take a few minutes and and look at it it was ornate It was beautiful. It had carrying rods on the bottom so that the people who would carry it wherever the Israelites went, they were never to touch like the top, the ornate part. Because you see, this was where Yahweh, God, was enthroned. They believed that this symbol was where the Spirit of God resided. They revered this ark so very much. I can't even begin to make a comparison for you. We use the cross as a symbol of our faith. But, you know, we wear crosses around our neck. We put them on our walls. We have them on our stages. We have them in our homes. Uh, 
crosses are revered, but nothing like this. There was only one ark of the tabernacle or ark of the covenant. In fact, it contained the law that God revealed to Moses, the first man who encountered uh, the presence of God in a burning bush up on the mountain and God gave him the law. Moses was the first one that God revealed those laws to and he brought those laws back down and they took the laws and they put them in, I keep pointing to that TV, sorry, I should point back here, put them in the ark of the covenant. So this was a huge, deal for the people. Now, when they would go into battle, they would carry this with them. This had to go with them into battle because they believed that if the ark was there, then God was there and they would win. Now, a couple of thousand years later, we have a different understanding of God. We understand that God lives in us, not in a gold and bronze ornate ark. But this morning, I want us to be in the minds of the people. Pretend you're the people that your, your grandparents had been enslaved, and then finally they were free, and you were finally inhabiting the promised land. And then there's this other group of people that you keep fighting, the Babylonians, and they keep winning. And it's back and forth, back and forth, in holy wars. That's what the folks were engaged in. And so this ark would go wherever they were in battle. So the scripture that you heard read this morning, David, King David, he comes leaping and dancing back into town. King Saul, the first king of the people, he is now deceased. David has assumed the kingship. Now, David's life is like a brilliant reality TV show. It would take me weeks to explain all the ins and outs of David's life, but basically he was involved in looking up with this one lady. She was going to be his, his wife, and the scriptures tell us that she loved him, but we never read that David returned that love for her. Her name was Michael. And so then, as a part of the story, she falls in love with another gentleman, Paul T., and they fall in love, which was uncharacteristic back then. Most of the marriages were arranged. So she falls in love with Paul T, and she is minding her own business. She sort of let this dream of David go. And then David, who, you know, ends up becoming king, he decides that he needs her back so that he can indeed become the king. So he sends one of the warriors to go get her, and bring him back so that she will be his wife. That's just a brief glimpse into some of the dealings of the political system back then and the life of David. So Michael comes back. She's David's wife. And she is sitting in a room somewhere watching out the window. And there's a big parade. Now, think about that. Put yourself Times Square on the Thanksgiving Day Parade, that's a big deal, the Macy's Day Parade up in New York, and people like to go to that parade. What if you had been a part of all the parts and pieces that would make this parade come to fruition, but then the day of the parade, you are sitting in a room, you're not even out there on the street enjoying the festivities. That's what was happening to Michael. She is 
in a room somewhere watching out the window and she sees her husband, and I use that term loosely, she sees her husband coming down the street and as we read in scripture, he is dancing and he is exposed. He has no clothes on. He is unabashedly dancing before God because he is so happy. Why is he happy? Because they had recaptured the Ark of the Tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant. It had been in Babylonian territory. It had been on the other side, the war side, and he got it back. And so it's coming into the city, the presence of God, the presence of Yahweh. It's coming into the city, and David is so excited about it that he is dancing naked. And Michael, his wife, is disgusted. She feels the emotion of disgust. I want us to think about why. Perhaps it's because of the way that she has been treated. She loved him. She was his wife. He didn't want her. She fell in love with another gentleman. And then David needed her. So basically he used her. But I want us to understand that that was just sort of what you did back then. They were arranged marriages. He needed her so that he could indeed become king someday. Because by this time Saul had decided that David was not his best choice, and Saul was trying to kill him. So David David was very political. And so he marries her again, and she's his wife. She's looking out the window, and she sees his unabashed happiness and joy. And she responds with disgust. She responds with disgust because perhaps she's hurt, Perhaps she's lonely. Perhaps she is afraid for her own well-being. She knows that David doesn't love her. She's just a political pawn, and now her dad is dead. She holds no more power. We don't really know what she was thinking, but we do know that she was repulsed at his actions And she was disgusted. What disgusts you? What makes you feel disgust? Hopefully it's not your pastor in a trench coat because that was supposed to be funny and make a point. And you know, we get disgusted about silly things. We get disgusted about, you know, pop stars that take a different path in life and hopefully get back to a path of wholesome goodness. We get repulsed, disgusted by those things, but what really disgusts you? And what do you do with it? I would encourage us to be disgusted by things that call us to action There is an innocence that comes with being naive. But there is a paralysis that comes with being cynical. And if we aren't careful, disgust leads to our becoming cynical. 
So I want you to think about that again. There is an innocence that comes with being naive to things. But there is a paralysis that comes with being cynical. And when we are cynical, typically it's because we have been disgusted by things for too long. I want you to take a look at this clip. It is a clip of what happened after 9-11. That was a time in our nation and in our world that we had every right to be disgusted. A group of people were acting out of hatred rather than out of love. They were misusing their religion. And they killed thousands and thousands of people out of their emotion of hate. So as a nation, we began to feel disgusted. But I want you to take a look at this clip and see what happened when people responded to that inner feeling of disgust. Take a look. I thought I was watching a movie, Towering Inferno at first. And then I looked real close and I noticed it was the World Trade Center. I was compelled because I'm a type of person that can't stand by and watch other people suffer. And to me, they were suffering. They wanted to get off the island. And there was no way for them to get off the island other than the water. And I had noticed when I was watching the television, I saw a lot of, you know, the ferries going up into the slips and taking people off. I said, fine, we could do the same thing. I could take people on my boat, get in there, take them where they have to go. And that's what we did. On the morning of September 11th, when the towers came down, millions of people ran for safety. Hundreds of thousands of them ran south to the water's edge. That's when they realized that Manhattan is indeed an island and that they were trapped. They were feeling helpless. And that's the worst feeling in the world. What was a person on the ground gonna do? There was a small boat that was uh, at the lower tip of Manhattan. I thought the boat was going to flip over because so many people were trying to get on. And as I looked behind, they were, they were just 10 deep. And that's kind of what gave us the idea. We decided that this has to get better organized and we better do it. And that's what we did. So we decided to make the call on the radio. All available boats. This is the United States Coast Guard board, the pilot boat New York. Anyone want to help with the evacuation of Lower Manhattan? Report to Governor's Island. When that call came on the radio, they were coming. I was uncertain of who was going to respond. About 15, 20 minutes later, there are just boats all across the horizon. Literally a hundred targets converging on the lower part of Manhattan. When we came out of that dust cloud, tugboats, I've never seen so many tugboats all at once. There was just a, like a fleet of tugboats headed to Manhattan. If it floated and it could get there, it got there. All different size, shapes, and forms. I mean, and they were zooming across this water. Ferries, private boats, party boats. I worked on the water for 28 years. I've never seen that many boats come together at one time that fast. 
one radio call and it just came together just that fast. Hundreds of boats converged on the city, leaving the sun-bathed harbor behind them. Dead ahead, the unknown. Some of these people never been in the water, never been on a boat before. Housewives, workers that do windows. We had executives. And the thing that was the best, everyone helped everyone. I want you to hold my hand. Come on board. Get inside. One at a I saw four businessmen lifting up an old woman with a seeing-eye dog, the German Shepherd, and they lifted her up like a surfboard and passed her over the handrails. When we would carry a load of people over, and there was somebody standing there that seen their husband or wife, you know, that made us feel even better, you know. Well, at least we got two back together, you know. Keep on going, you know. The guy that works at the ferry, he's a, a welder. His son was on my boat. He, he actually came up. Uh, We went back and forth all day long, carrying boatloads, as many as our, our boat would hold. And it's a lot of people. A lot of people. You couldn't have planned nothing to happen that fast, that quick. No training. This was just people doing what they had to do that day. You forget all about what you're supposed to do, what the teachers school, and you say, you know what? Morally, this is the right way to go. And deep down, this is what I'm going to do. Average people, they stepped up and uh, when they needed to. They showed me, you know, when the American people need to come together and pull together, they will do it. I do feel a way honored that I was a part of it. It was the greatest thing I ever did with my life. The greatest day that I've ever seen in all my boating, I mean, my life on the water. The Great Boat Lift of 9-11 became the largest sea evacuation in history. Larger than the evacuation of Dunkirk in World War II, where 339,000 British and French soldiers were rescued over the course of nine days. On 9-11, nearly 500,000 civilians were rescued from Manhattan by boat. It took less than nine hours. Michael, the wife of David, she had been treated in such a way for so long that her emotions, her anger, her hurt, her disgust had turned into cynicism. She was an Israelite as well, so that Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Tabernacle that David was unabashedly, nakedly dancing through the streets because he was so happy that the presence of God was back with them, she should have been able to feel that same joy. But she didn't. Sometimes in life, we have been hurt too much. We've become cold and calloused to joy. Disgust is one of those emotions that makes us callous to joy. You see on this video, every 
day people, people who said they broke the rules and they didn't do what they were taught to do in school because the moral thing was to do what was right. We're all called to do what is right. I've debated for the past several days whether or not to tell you this story as a closing illustration. I debated it because it hits just a tiny bit too close to home, and it's embarrassing. I tell you this story, though, because it's very real, and I have a voice, I have a platform, and I think this story needs to be told. On Wednesday afternoon, I was having a great day with the youth and their amazing leaders on this mission trip, and I got a phone call from a bank. That's usually not good. So I took the phone call, and it was ironically from my father's bank. My dad's 89 years old, retired military, very always, for all his years of my existence, at large and in charge. And there's definitely a respect there that I've had from my father. So certain things I have never gotten involved in until Wednesday and Thursday. Just last week, ironically enough, he had spoken to me about being a co-signer on his accounts because he's getting old, etc., and I need to be prepared to handle things. I'm an only child. And so I went to sawmills and went to banks and signed things and became a co-signer of his accounts. And thank goodness... Because on Wednesday afternoon, the bankers at these banks, there are multiple, began to call me. They noticed activity with my dad that was uncharacteristic of him. After driving home that evening and then going Thursday to be with my father and investigate what was happening... And reminding him that I'm 44 and an adult now, so perhaps we could look at this equally. I found out that he was involved as a victim of a scam, a fraud. The things, the public service announcements that you see on TV, you know, about senior adults being falling victim to fraudulent people, it's true. So by Thursday afternoon, I had visited three banks two deputies, or visited with one, talked with another, the post office, and realized that tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of dollars of my dad's had been scammed. Now, here's what makes me sad about it. I don't care about the money. That is not what matters. My 89-year-old father, who can't hear very well anymore, had gotten some phone calls from some people that used their time and their energy to take what is not theirs. And they had convinced my father that he had won the sweepstakes. Now, my daddy has been entering the sweepstakes since I was a little girl. He was convinced that the publisher's clearinghouse was going to show up at his door one day. My father also tithes. Tithe is a biblical term for whatever your income is. You give 10% off the top to the church. 
So all my life, he's always given 10% of whatever his income was to his church. These folks knew a lot about my dad. They convinced him that he had won and that if he would give them his money, that they were going to invest it for him. So then, as a part of the sweepstakes, and the logic doesn't make sense, my dad's 89, but as a part of the sweepstakes, he would get a return on his investment for the charities that he loves so much, like his church. And so he naively gave these people a lot of money and a lot of information that they never needed to have because he thought he was doing good. Now, I tell you that story, number one, if you have aging parents, to not be naive like I was and want to think they've got it all taken care of because clearly he didn't. I tell you that story because we just saw men, women, use their resources to save the lives of other people. Now, that's a grandiose example because that was a national tragedy. And thank goodness those things don't happen a lot. But tragedies happen every day in our midst. Tragedies that should disgust us. On Thursday, as I had an opportunity to talk to all the different banking people, there were three different banks, two different post offices. My father was mailing these people cash, heavy packages of cash. And luckily, because he's in a small town, and they've known him for years, one time he did not pay the postage, he just handed the woman the money and said, will you please put the right postage on this envelope? My hands are shaking too much, I can't do it. And so she held on to the package. In the meantime, the bankers that my father's dealt with for years noticed erratic behavior, withdrawing large sums of money day after day after day, and they were worried for his safety, so they picked up the phone call and phone and called me. When I talked with a social worker on Friday afternoon, he made a statement that convinced me that, yeah, I do make myself vulnerable enough to tell you this story. He said, this is just nothing but evil. And I thought, you know, there are opposing forces in the world from good. I could focus on that, but I'm not going to. I'm going to focus on all the people that took a risk and push the limits of their jobs just a little. They didn't break any law, but they pushed some limits to alert me and bring me into the know. By the end of Thursday, I could not have been more sad, more exhausted, but also more grateful for people in this world that see opportunity for good. We're all called to be those people, a postal worker, a bank teller. Folks, that's us. They saved my father's nest egg for his health care. They saved him. We're all called. And we all have the responsibility to save one another. 
That's what happens when the kingdom of God comes alive in this world. We should all be running and dancing unabashedly with love and joy in our hearts, not be cold and callous to the world that goes on around us. Let us be filled with love and joy. And let us use that emotion of disgust for good. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have empowered all of us to be your people, to be your hands and your feet, to make a difference like the youth did this week at various home sites in Wilmington, the love that they shared with those individuals who were in need. God, that's tangible, tangible ways of making a difference. God, every pair of tennis shoes that are purchased for the back of school, back to school bash that is a real way for people to show others how amazing of a God and world this is and can be when we live out of love your love never fails let us rely on and lean into that love in Christ's name we pray amen the beautiful thing about being a follower of God is that we know that God does not live in this ark of the tabernacle. We don't have to have that to go into battle before us to know that we have a shot at winning. Love wins. Good always wins. God lives in each of us. We are called to be that vessel of God in the world. And the love that we live into and live out of, it does not ever fail. So... As you leave today, you have an opportunity to go by the back-to-school bash table. We are in the end weeks of that. Bonnie Battaglia has done an amazing job pulling that together this year. We will impact over, oh, I don't know, 1,200 students' lives in just a few weeks. And you can be a part of that by buying a pair of tennis shoes or volunteering the day of the event. the event. You can go to the website and see how to sign up. You have lots of ways in the way, the places that you work, the schools that you attend, at living out being the hands and feet of Christ. Go and be those hands and feet, for that love never fails. Amen.